Hi, everybody. Good to be talking to you. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Joel, and uh, we have teaching from the Bible here at Emmanuel every Sunday. We've been going through the book of Matthew uh, for most of this year, and today we are starting a new series of messages under the title, On Your Mind. Um, and the big theme of this is anxiety. Uh, we want to talk about how the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus uh, brings help and hope into this whole area uh, of anxiety. We'll be looking at it under different subheadings and from different angles uh, in the weeks to come. And I hope that this will be a great blessing to you. Uh, that's that's our, our longing, that we can, by God's grace, bring something to the city that, that changes lives for the better. Uh, so please join us in the coming weeks, and I'm, I'm confident that in some way through all of this, uh, your life will be helped and God will begin to work uh, in you and for you uh, through the work of his son. While we're on the subject of uh, uh, this term ahead, I want to just mention how much I've personally been looking forward to the week ahead. We start every term here at Emmanuel with a season of prayer. And this, this term, we're having a week of prayer, just, just starting this very week now. And I, I want to say I personally have yearned for this. I've, I've so looked forward to the opportunity to gather uh, with people from across the church in, in different places or different times in the week and, and just enjoy worshipping Jesus and fellowshipping with him in the presence of his Holy Spirit and calling on him, asking him for things. This is, this is how we do life as a church. We pray, we pray, we seek God, we ask God for things, we knock on his door. And it's, it's the most important thing we do as a church through the year. Let me urge you, if you are an Emanuela, prioritize this, join us. I can't wait. I genuinely am so looking forward to, to this chance to be with you, to see you guys. I've, I've missed many of you for, from, from uh, being across different sites, but not being able to gather together. And I love the privilege this gives us to do just that. And I love the opportunity to, to be together in worship and prayer. Join us. These are going to be special occasions. Uh, let's get into what the last chunk of Matthew chapter 11 says uh, here in the Bible. It says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." We're doing this, this series, you could say, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, we're aware of the subject of mental health as a pressing issue uh, socially. We are struck by the fact that given our relatively comfortable age, I mean, we, we live in 
you know, a fairly comfortable city in many ways. Brighton is, is enviable in terms of how, how wealthy it seems to be, how free it seems to be, how easy a place it seems to be to live in, generally speaking, uh, in comparison with other places and times in history. Uh, we live at times where, where you know, affluence and general comfort are a little bit more normal. We don't live at a time of, of great war and distress, at least not, not in our particular uh, locations and situations. We, we live at a time where health and uh, medical care are generally, uh, generally more available than they would have been, again, at most times and places in, in history. Uh, we, we have all kinds of things going for us, all kinds of things that make our lives, uh, by comparison, almost extremely livable and easy uh, than, than other generations and, and even compared to other uh, places where people currently live in their, in their millions and billions around the world. And yet our society, it seems increasingly, is marked by examples of, of deteriorating mental health and levels of anxiety, pressure, strain on people emotionally that cause genuine concern and even do put strain on health services and, 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 uh, and, and provoke questions. What, what are we doing wrong? Where have we gone wrong? Haven't we got so many things fixed? Haven't we been able to create a society which seems so stable and civilized and generally safe? It, it doesn't seem to add up that our mental health levels look like they deteriorate. I, I remember a quotation from... Uh, from, I guess, by now a kind of classic film uh, from a few years back, Fight Club, where one of the, I guess, the key character, Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, has a little speech at one of the stages where he's talking to the men that he's gathered. And he says this, We're the middle children of history. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our Great Depression is our lives. We've been all raised by television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact. That's, a, I think, a penetrating analysis. It's a, it's a helpful way of kind of summarizing what, what might be at the heart of our kind of concerns on a, on a, on a wide social level. And people do suggest you know, all kinds of problems and causes and roots to the mental health uh, uh, trouble. What about the, the increase in drug take and availability of drugs? What about the, the, the massive impact that social media seems to have on us on all kinds of levels? Certainly uh, for the younger generation, it seems especially uh, a concern. What about the just general kind of disintegration that seems to be happening on a socio-political level? Uh, extremes and, and high level of, you know, sort of identity politics people, uh, people becoming more and more tribal in the way that they, uh, they identify themselves and, and feel hostility towards others. There seems to be a certain measure of social disharmony, um, even disintegration at least beginning to kick in. And then you've got to ask even perhaps some of the more 
deep questions. What about institutions like family? Uh, the, the sense of connecting and feeling connected and being a part of something bigger than yourself. Uh, that, that seems to have gone a long way ago. Our, our, our kind of prevailing sense is that we are individuals. We're individual consumers even. And our sense of belonging and being valued just by virtue of belonging to a family, well, that has at least been diluted uh, in our time. And many would simply say, well, that, that's got to be at least part of the problem, if not the main root problem. Christians will, will ask deeper questions still and say, what about the fact that on a social level, on a kind of cultural level, we've cut ourselves off from any sense of spiritual meaning to life. Uh, we've, we've chosen a, a way of looking at the world that's entirely kind of mechanistic, naturalistic, uh, that's reduced to just the physical, reduced to things that you can, uh, I suppose, quantify, you know, test in a laboratory. Uh, you, you, you end up with a universe that's basically godless and a, a universe where you can achieve quite a lot through technology. We know how to make things happen. We are increasingly skilled at mechanizing the world around us and, and making it serve our goals. So we can answer the how questions more and more easily. But we've forgotten the why questions. In fact, we almost would refer, prefer not to go there. Uh, I, I love this quotation from one of my favorite preachers. I don't normally read long quotations on Sunday preaching. Uh, I try to avoid doing that. But sometimes you come across a few paragraphs from someone who says something extremely well. Uh, this is something that Peter Lewis said in a book from a few years ago. We know so much, and yet we know so little. And all because our starting point is wrong. We've made man the measure of all things, and he's busy taking the measure of all things, even while he is losing the measure of all things. Our data banks are loaded with technical know-how, while our century has become bankrupt of know-why. Even as we solve the problems, we remain our biggest problem. We can control colossal forces, but we cannot control ourselves. Even as we see the possibilities, we fail to reach them, and indeed they seem to recede. Having locked God out of a scientifically determined universe, we now find ourselves lost in a spiritually empty universe, one with no higher purpose and in which life has no ultimate meaning. One response to this, ancient and modern, has been to people our universe with gods, projections of our hopes and fears, mystic philosophies and occult experiences which are intended to give greater value or meaning to the world of brute facts and physics. Once again, man becomes the starting point and inevitably his creation is as flawed as its creator. Jesus calls us to a new starting point. He offers help from the outside. It's help that will not fail us if we will leave our learned limitations, our stunted wisdom, 
if we will in the things of God become children and learn from him, then in the busyness of our days and the excitement of our discoveries and the disappointment of our failures, we shall find rest for our souls. The second reason we've wanted to do this series is actually very simply because this is the point we've got to in the Bible. We've been going through the book of Matthew and it is a story of Jesus presenting himself to his people, offering himself to them and offering his kingdom to them, offering his way of being human to them. And effectively, his way is rejected. We get to the point in chapter 11 where on a kind of public level, he brings his verdict to their response to him. It's like he said, okay, I've offered you this way of being Israel, this way of having God amongst you, this way of being a kingdom. And largely you've rejected it. Or at least the panel has been divided. The judges have been divided. Yeah, there's one or two on the panel who are kind of on, on Jesus' side, if you like. But generally, it's been a no. And so Jesus has spent some of chapter 11 talking about that. But at the point of the chapter I read to you, Jesus is, is reflecting on this fact that God his Father, the, the God of the Bible, who is the Father of Jesus Christ... This, this father in heaven seems to have been working even through the, the rejection that Israel has given to Jesus. Because what Jesus has also seen is that the people who have turned, the panel members, if you like, the judges who have turned to Jesus and said, yes, we want Jesus, They've been not the wise and understanding, the wise and the learned. They've not been the great ones in the eyes of that age. They've not been the, the apparent achievers, the success stories. They've not been the public intellectuals. They've not been the great teachers and heroes and leaders. They've been, well, the, the children, if you like. Not, not just literally children, but the, 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 the simple, the humble he calls them children because that's the demeanor that they've kind of learned to accept. They've learned to come to Jesus with that, that attitude, childlike attitude. And Jesus says, it seems that that's exactly what my father has planned, that he wants to share himself and share me with ones who come like little children. And we get in this quite extraordinary chunk of the Bible that I read to you, to be eavesdroppers on one of the perhaps most special prayers that ever got prayed by a human being in public. Jesus, with us listening in, starts talking to his dad, talks to his father. Maybe you grew up with, with parents who, who, who talked in a very uh, private way. And you, you might have even occasionally longed to know, what are they really talking about? What are they thinking about as they discuss things behind closed doors? And as you grew older, you, you had the privilege. Sometimes you, you notice this as you get into your teens and, and, and as you get older. You have the privilege of being in the room when they start talking about things. They, they almost invite it. As you get older, they, they, they want you to share the conversation. They want you to overhear it because they want you to grow and learn and listen to the way they process things. And I suppose it's a little bit like that. Jesus is deliberately having this conversation with his father 
with an audience. He's deliberately doing it. He's saying, I want you in on this. I want you to see how I talk with him and how he talks to me. I want you to see this thing that's at the center of, of all things, the center of the universe. What's at the center of the universe? Accidental atoms that are just bouncing off each other and just physical matter? Is that what the universe is in essence? Just one big, long, random chance spilling out of, of meaningless events? No, at the center of the universe is a relationship between a father and a son, an eternal loving relationship. And here we see it, and in a, an astonishing way, we're kind of given an idea of how we can be invited to share it. Jesus has come into the world to share his father with us, to share his, his, his dear dad with people like me and you. And if we really begin to understand the, 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 <laughs> the majesty of that thought, it will change our lives. It will change the way we see everything. He's come to share his father with me and you. And in doing so, he's provided another option as to how we can be human how to do human life, how to, how to live with this Father, the Father of Jesus, to come in, to share by adoption in the, the privileges of, of childhood, of, of sonship and daughtership with this eternal Son. And this is the big theme of the Bible, you could say, Certainly, it kind of pokes itself out in chapter 11 of Matthew and in so many other key places. And I, I, I want to say that as we go through this series on anxiety, it's going to come out from this platform. It's going to be, if you like, a whole series just on these few verses from Matthew chapter 11. It won't be. We'll go to all kinds of other bits of the Bible because the Bible talks about this all over the place. It's rich with references to our anxiety, our mental and emotional well-being. And I nevertheless wonder, though, whether there's anything more significant than these verses from Matthew 11, because we see so much if we look closely. And we won't get time to look at it very closely today. It's, it's, not, it's just too rich in a way. But, but I wanted to launch from here to give you an idea of what, what is the whole point of this series. We, we want to talk about how Jesus sharing his life with us, sharing his Father with us, affects everything. And today, actually, just to, 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 to kick us off with the rest of our time today, um, I wanted to just give that introductory piece for the whole series. But before I finish today, I want to talk about this, this first item. Uh, when it comes to anxiety, you're never far away from the subject of stress. And very simply, I want to touch on the theme of stress uh, in our time that remains. Stress is, is, I suppose, kind of anxiety being physically registered. It's like when, when anxiety which rumbles away below the surface comes above the surface and we begin to sense it on a more obviously uh, physical uh, um, plane level. And it kind of exerts its, its, its presence. It says, look, <laughs> I'm here. And we sense stress uh, in, in all kinds of ways. And it seemed a good way to start because it's September. 
uh, we're going into the autumn term. Back to school, back to college, off to university. For some of us, for the first time, we're freshers. Or back to work. You know, some of us just spent the last week or two on sun lounge beds near swimming pools or towels at beaches or walking in the hills of Cumbria or whatever. You, you've enjoyed the rest, whichever kind of it that you most find refreshing. And now it's back to normality. It's back to the busyness, the pressure, the deadlines, the demands, the goals, the targets, the bosses, the colleagues, the management charts, the ambitions, the drive, the, the budgets. That These things are going to contribute to at least a potential experience of stress as we get into the weeks ahead. In fact, if we're honest, most of us will feel stressed in the next few weeks. A recent YouGov report came up with the finding that 74% in the UK talked of stress levels which reached overwhelming stage in this last year. 74%. So yeah, I, I've become stressed to the point of feeling overwhelmed. I can't cope. I cannot cope. And you put that against uh, other statistics, you notice that it's, it's particularly so amongst the younger generation. It's still there as you get into older generations, but amongst the younger, these statistics are sharper. People talked about suicidal thoughts just being uh, inflicted on them by, or, or, or associated with stress. And uh, people have talked about in 32% of cases, 32% of people, that's a huge statistic, 32% struggling with, occasionally at least, with suicidal thoughts that are stress-related. And then a 16% who self-harmed in the last year in association with stress. Again, the, the statistics are sharper and higher as you go younger. The 18 to 24 age bracket experiences these things at the highest percentage. Stress is real. Stress is present. Stress is in the room. <laughs> whichever, whichever location of Emmanuel you're in, you're in a room with stress. And you're probably in a body with stress. You're probably in a life of currently with stress. And you're going into a busy autumn term. So we're talking about stuff that we all know about right now. We're talking about stuff that affects sometimes our sleeping patterns, our, our ability to stop and relax. Uh, it causes us to sometimes feel like we have to work faster, but feel that we can't, feel that we can't stop because we have so much to do, but the more we, we go at it, the less we feel that we're getting done. Uh, the sense that we can't stop thinking, and our thinking nevertheless becomes more and more fruitless, less and less productive, because it just becomes frenzied. It becomes panicky. We become those who think about our thinking. We're stressed about our stress. And it kind of perpetuates itself. We get caught up in, in cycles or even vicious circles, uh, downward spirals of, of pressure and anxiety on all kinds of levels. The question we should probably ask if we're looking at the Bible is, is this how it should be? Is this, is this intended? Is there something productive about stress? Is it, is it sort of God's way of getting us out of bed? Does God intend for us to, to get motivated by sweaty exhaustion and a constant sense of failure and letting people down 
and a horrible list that doesn't seem to get shorter, however many things we cross off. And uh, an imagination of all the people who right now are ready to send us a nasty, spiteful text or email because we've somehow not been good enough for them. Is that how life is meant? Did God intend this for us? The answer is an absolutely resounding no. This is not how it should be. God's plan, God's intention for us was for us to work. So work is, is there on the first page of the Bible. Responsibility, authority, a calling, tasks, vocation. But all these things at the first part of our story, at the beginning of the Bible, are good things. They are not occasions for stress, not in any way. If you, if you want to imagine what work was meant to be like, how God intended work to happen, I suppose you could use the, the, the ideas of, of positive psychologists like uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, who, who popularized the idea of flow. Some of you may have seen the diagram uh, that, that shows at the far end, on the top, top end of, of the, the Y and X axis, this place that we all want to inhabit called flow, where not only are we just capable of doing the work, but it's the work that most stimulates us. It's the work that most excites us and gratifies us. And what we can easily find ourselves doing is, is being somewhere short of that kind of sector on the graph where we, we actually end up becoming more aware of the pressure and the difficulty and, and less aware of our, our capacity for it and we get anxious. Or we might go the opposite extreme. We might just resort to doing tasks that are contemptibly beneath our abilities, which is perhaps the making for an easier life, a more relaxing life, a more manageable life, but not a more stretching, stimulating, exciting life. Ultimately, that's no answer either. It seems the key is to try and exist in that sector called flow. And I think maybe there we have a clue as to how God intended our working experience to be. That actually work is meant to be the kind of thing that you enjoy. You ever had an experience of that? I'm sure we've all known times, maybe days, weeks, months even, maybe long stretches of our lives where our work has consistently been more fun than fun. <laughs> where it's actually hard to tear yourself away for a holiday. because Not because you've got to get it done and I've got to get the deadlines before I go away, but actually, who needs a holiday? This is restful. <laughs> this is joyful. Uh, this is a pleasure to me. That can happen. It surely can. And, and I think that was God's intention for us. And it hasn't been our experience, has it? Most of us don't live there. We live somewhere short of that sector most of the time, if not all of it. And even when we enjoy flow, it, it can really feel like just a taste of something that we can't keep. We can't, we can't expect to stay there. And so it almost becomes the exception that proves the rule. Generally speaking, work seems a drain. Work and responsibility and pressure of life seems stressful. And I want to tell you, the Bible explains why. The Bible says what happened at the very, very early stages of our human history. We turned away from him. 
He made us to enjoy working to serve him, working within him, if you like, in his in relationship with him, happily, identifying as his. Joyful because the work we were doing was his. Happy because it was all about him. He's the reference point. He's the goal. He's the purpose. He's the initiator. He's the boss. He's the help. He's everything that we need. He, it's all about him. And work becomes a joy because I, I, I'm getting to do this in relationship to a good God. But we've cut off our relationship from the good God, haven't we? Haven't you? That's what we've done. That's, that's our story. That's all of our story. Not just the people in this book. It's our human story. And one of the results of that is that work becomes something we're alienated from. It becomes just a necessity. I've got to work because I've got to feed myself and my dependents. I can't not work but it becomes a means to an end and, and potentially becomes a strain, becomes a resented thing. And God says at the very first stage of our fall, right in the early pages of the Bible, you, you will toil. Work will become a toil. You will work the earth by the sweat of your brow. Work will become a, a labor, a stressful thing, a, pressure, a pressurized thing and we can't seem to get rid of this human predicament it's just part of our existence and it feels like well this is how it's supposed to be but I'm here to tell you it's not how it's supposed to be it isn't God's blessing God's best God's will for us was that we would have joy and we would even rest in our work and God's good news for us is that through Jesus He's made a way for us to return to that, to return to a different way of seeing life, responsibility, stress and strain, to be somehow liberated from this kind of constant pressure, this constant sense of stress. And I want us to just, before we move on, just look at this, these verses before I finish, how they relate to this. Jesus at this famous point in, in Matthew's gospel says to the crowds, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, we don't live in agricultural context, most of us, so we don't know what he means necessarily when we first read that. Take my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? It's, it's really what would be placed upon a beast of burden, like a mule or, or an ox, oxen who would buy you know, cattle that carry loads, that carry uh, responsibility, if you like. They, they come under a yoke, literally a wooden beam that would be over shoulders and that they would be kind of harnessed to as a way of pulling, beasts of burden, pulling things forward, pulling a plow or, or some such. That's, that's a very simple image for people living at this time, but it's easy for us to grasp. It means Jesus is saying, I want you to carry something for me. I want you to. I want you to serve me. You're going to have to. When Jesus says, follow my teaching, follow me, watch me, learn from me, he's doing like people generally would have done at that time. He's saying, be my disciple by making me the central point of your life, the authority of your life. It's different from today. If, if you want training, input, teaching, education today, you just click on 
websites and you, 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 you download a podcast or you, you might even pay some money through your PayPal and, and, and download a whole course. It might cost you £100 to download a course, but you are still the boss. Even if you go to university, you're the boss. You can take this unit, that module. You can take these exams and not do that one. You change the, you know, combine honors, do what you like. Even to some extent at school, you're changing this, doing this. You're certainly not coming under the, the authoritative oversight of a master. We're not saying to a teacher, you are my commander. You are the one under whose authority I now come. I'm taking on your yoke. I'm going to be a beast of burden for you. So you might think, well, that's not, we don't do that. We, uh, what do you mean, take on a yoke? We're free. This is the 21st century. But are we? See, the reality is you, you can't not take on a yoke of some kind. We all will. We all take on pressures and responsibilities because we have things in our lives that are the main thing. Whatever you live for will rule you. Some of us, it's obvious. There's something that dominates our lives because it's controlled us. It's maybe an addiction. It's maybe a person. Maybe there's some kind of relationship that we've got into where we are robbed of our responsibility, robbed of our freedom because somebody so dominates us. Maybe they don't even know they're doing it, but it controls us. Maybe, maybe it is something as sinister as that, but it doesn't have to be. It can be something that sounds very noble and good. It may be that what we live for is our ambition, our desire to achieve. It may be we live for a relationship. We, we live for it. We live for one person. We live to please that one person, to have that one person. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that whatever that thing is, that one thing that you live for, that's your yoke. That's the thing you come under and it will control you. It will, it will in some way bring you to a point of stress, however good it is. Why? Because it's not who you were made to live for. You've turned a good thing into a God thing, and because it's become a God thing, it's become a bad thing. Jesus offers himself and says, come, come to me, take my yoke upon you. Why, why are yours? Because he's different. <laughs> he's so different. You've got to serve someone. You've got to come under someone. He's not saying, don't bother. Don't come under anybody. No, he's definitely saying, no, take my yoke upon you. But why him? Because he says, I'm gentle. I'm gentle. You'll find rest. Not just rest for your body. Not just three weeks in Mallorca. Not just one week in Cumbria. Not one, you will find rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. He says, I, I, I'm gentle. I give rest as a starting point. You come to me and work, beast of burden. Doesn't sound very restful. He says the first thing he offers is, you'll find rest. You'll find rest. How? It's what we were made for. It's interesting to notice when you read the first page of the Bible, that the, the story of the description of creation is fascinating, happening over the different days of creation. The, the first day that humanity comes along is the sixth day. The seventh day is the Sabbath. God works all week. We show up in time for a day off. We show up and the first thing God says, rest, 
rest. Your first day, rest. That's in keeping with, with, with Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, and Jesus is coming back to that. He's saying, come to me, I'll give you rest. That's what God always wanted for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Even, even with enemies before me, he prepares a table for me. The, the whole thrust, the message of the Bible is God's invitation, God's determination to invite us into genuine spiritual rest. Not spiritual in the sense that it remains in a spirit realm. No, no, Jesus is showing us how to be human. Jesus says, learn from me. Watch me, watch the man, watch this human being, Jesus. See, we think of Jesus in stained glass sometimes. We don't realize that, oh, he's human, all right. He knew what it was to need to stop, to relax, to sit with friends, to laugh himself off his chair, to, to, to eat a good meal, to enjoy good wine, to have fun, to enjoy the family, to play with the kids, to, to play sport. Jesus did human life and he said, watch me, watch me. You mustn't imagine that spiritual rest means that you sort of just have a kind of a sort of strange spiritual membrane somewhere in your life and the rest of life is, is sort of <laughs> is irrelevant to that. No, Jesus is saying, no, I, I want you to do the whole of life with me in mind. I want you to learn what it means to, to, to do human life in submission to me, to let me be your master to take my yoke upon you wherever you are, even when your boss is someone else. Maybe your boss is, is, is anti-Christian. You might be in a very difficult environment in terms of, you know, it might be that your, 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 your yoke is trying to keep a boss happy who's putting you under pressure or trying to keep colleagues happy who put you under pressure. You feel a sense of failure a lot of the time because of that kind of a yoke. But Jesus would say, like Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, do everything as unto the Lord. Serve him. See him as your master. Stop being frightened of other people's opinions. You're coming under their yoke. You're, you're weary and heavy laden. You're under pressure. You're feeling the pressure of people's expectations. And that's because you, you idolize them too much. You make that seem more important than the favor of God. And Jesus says to us, I want you to learn to rest in my favor, in my approval. I'm gentle. My commands are not burdensome. I'm such a good boss, <laughs> if you want to call him a boss. If, if, that's, if we want to see him as our commander, our leader, he says, okay, I'm gentle. My commands are not burdensome. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Some of us might say, yeah, but didn't Jesus say, Take up your cross and follow me. That sounds like hard work. It sounds like appallingly hard work. Doesn't, isn't Jesus coming to give us extra stresses and burdens? And to be sure, religion can be the worst kind of burden. You go through a stressful week, then you come to church on a Sunday, and all you get is more stress because you come to a place where the message is, by the way, you're not doing well enough, try harder, work harder this term, be a better Christian this term. You did a bad job last term, be a better Christian this term. And it's just another burden. But this message is surely taking the rug out from under there. Jesus is saying, I have not come to burden you like religion does, like the religious people of Jesus' day did, and he rebuked them for it. No, no, that's not my goal. 
My goal is actually to take burdens off you. Yeah, but you told us to carry the cross. Yeah, but think about it. Why would you carry the cross? Why would you obey Jesus? Why would you come under his yoke? Jesus says in John's gospel, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me. That's the point. Jesus is saying, this is a relationship. Come to me. Not come to Christianity. He doesn't even say come to church. I hope you will. For that's, that's not what he's saying primarily here. He's saying, come to me. Come to me. Now, to be sure, one of the ways you come to him is by gathering with God's people, being with the church. But make no mistake, you must come to him. You must come to this person. This life-giving, burden-carrying person who in the end says, that burden a bit heavy for you? Is it hard? Is it pressure? Well, you need to know it's, it's not yours to carry alone. He carries the worst of it with us. He's the one that carries the cross for us. He's the one that took on the worst of our stress. All the things that cause us stress, all the pride, all the sense of importance. So much of our stress, be careful on this, comes from pride. That's why he says, I'm humble. Learn from me. I'm humble. How often do I get stressed and not even stop? Because stress lies to you. Stress tells you you're not allowed to stop and think. But when I do stop and think and question my stress, stress hates it when you question it, but question it. Learn to, learn to stop stress and say, hold on. Let me just ask myself here, what is the stress? Why, why do I feel this pressure so much of the time in my case and I'm sure in yours? It doesn't take long to discover that the pressure comes from a, a sense of pride, a sense of independence, a sense of needing to prove myself, needing to have proved something, needing to have achieved something that becomes overly important in my week, in my day, in my month, something overly important, something that I've made into an idol, other people's approval. Frankly, as a preacher, very often it's your approval. It's, it's doing a great job. And it's so important I do a great job that that becomes overwhelmingly pressurizing to the point where I'm hurting people around me. And I'm realizing that's not the yoke Jesus put on me. I put that on me. I'm free. Je Jesus comes and says, no, 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 take my yoke. Learn from me. I'm humble. You don't need their approval. You don't need the thing, half the things you think you need. In fact, most of the things you think you need. Because that's, that's my job. He's here to meet with us in our need. And so remember and remind yourself where the stress comes from and learn to live in the provision and grace of this burden-carrying Savior who invites us into the same freedom of the relationship he has with his Father, who tells him who he is. Jesus says, I, I know who I am. I'm, I'm in relationship with my Father. He knows me. I know him. It tells me everything I need to know. And friends, this is the answer for us, to come back to that genuine, deep relationship with our Father. There's so much more we could say. There's so much more we could dig into here that's so important.
but we need to finish for time's sake. We're going to get further into this as the weeks go on, but let me just pray. Father, I'm grateful to you for your help in showing us Jesus as the one who carries our burdens rather than gives them to us. Now help us to live free, freer this week. Help us to learn this term. I pray that we in Emmanuel would learn from you. We would do exactly what you say in this verse. Learn from me. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble. Teach us to learn your ways and become freer as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.